The Feast of Transfiguration is actually tied to the um, Feast in ancient Israel of Sukkoth, what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And originally it was a feast for the last great harvest before everything shut down for winter. And the idea of putting these shelters or lean-tos or they, here it says booths, but it simply means a shelter, uh, was because you were so intent on getting everything you could before, you know, just laying around it would kind of ripen too much and not be any good. So they would sleep out in the field. So, as, you know, as soon as they got up in the morning, they would be harvesting what was left all until night and then sleep to keep going until they had cleared the fields of anything that was usable ter in terms of fruits and vegetables and so forth. So we have to think of that in terms of harvest, you know, the, the final harvest of the year. Now, interestingly, um, the way this feast falls in the Christian world, of course, I mentioned this before many times, it came to mean also the, t the trek of the ancient Israelites through the desert until they could reach the promised land. Okay, for 40 years. Remember, they were going through uh, the desert. And then finally, God will bring them to the Jordan River. And Moses will have died by then. And now, God's servant, the one that is the, you know, as it were, designated by Moses himself to now lead the people of Israel, Joshua, a.k.a. Yeshua in Hebrew, will bring them to the Jordan River and like the Red Sea, the Jordan River will part. The Ark of the Covenant, the, you know, the physical expression of God's presence, goes into the middle of the river. It parts just like the Red Sea. The Israelites cross and go into the Promised Land. Now it's interesting, too, that um, the designation of this feast is 40 days before the Feast of the Cross, the Yom Kippur. Now in, in Ancient Israel, Yom Kippur was about the sacrifice, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, but that God would provide the sacrifice, as we, as we know, even in the Hebrew scriptures. So all that plays in as, as far as background is concerned. So here we have Jesus, and it's around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkoth. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John, the three who were actually in a leadership position within the Twelve. And they go up to pray. And, <laughs> of course, the disciples don't have a discipline of prayer yet because they keep falling asleep on Jesus. <coughs> anyway, when they suddenly wake up, they hear, and they look up, and of course, as we know in the Scripture, he's bright as lightning. I, I don't know if you can imagine, when people have seen this experience, imagine trying to look into the sun. And Matthew says his face was like the sun. And you might see like the mouth, the nose, kind of the eyes, but all you're seeing is this, this light. This light, like trying to look into the middle of the sun. And even his garments were light. And God is light, in him and there is no darkness. But the interesting thing is when you read about Moses going up Mount Sinai uh, to encounter God, that it talks about darkness. But did you ever get some place where the light is so bright it blinds you? that even the darkness is light to God. Even the darkness is the light of God. So no matter where we go, if we see him or if we feel like we're in darkness, etc., God is there. Now, the Old Testament scriptures that would have been read at Vespers last night, we could have read today, um, 
was Moses encountering God out of the cloud. And notice there's an overshadowing. This, this whole thing of overshadowing is very powerful, significant of the Holy Spirit coming on everything. And again, and I'm not going to go into it, this very much ties into the idea of baptism, what happened at Jesus' baptism. Here comes Jesus, who's the sinless Son of God, to be baptized in a rite, in a ritual for people who are sinners. And it shows what the incarnation is, that now God has come in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our craziness in this world, to dip himself into our human realities, to immerse himself in that reality. And he does this, and he comes out of the water, right? And hopefully you remember this. And now, instead of death, it's, it's coming out of the water like life, like when a woman is about to give birth, her water breaks, as they say. And when he comes out of the water, this incredible, incredible scene of the heavens are opened. In Mark's gospel, <laughs> I love Mark. Mark says, the heavens were ripped. Schismos. The heavens were ripped open. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son. And what we see is not only the revelation that God is, th- is who he is as distinct persons, the Father with his Son and the Holy Spirit. He's not one person with three masks or three personalities like he's, he's got some kind of a, a multiple personality disorder. He's three distinct persons. He's a community. But what we see is not only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in Jesus also humanity being brought into the community of the Trinity. Because that's what salvation ultimately is, is to be brought into that community to partner with God, the way Jesus partners with God, right? As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That partnership to do what Jesus does to work on his project with him, of bringing all of creation, all of humanity, into that rebirthing reality that is accomplished through his death on the cross. Oops. Now, that's the part that I tell people, you know, <laughs> wouldn't like to hear that part. That there might be suffering, there might be difficulty in life. And the fact of Yom Kippur, the idea that Abraham was going to sacrifice his own child. So that Abraham would get a sense of what God was going to throw, give, you know, go through when he was going to give up his own child. But for the life and salvation of the world. And salvation is accomplished not because we simply believe in Jesus like a cerebral ascent, but because God organically immersed himself in our human realities and remains immersed. You know, at the ascension, Jesus still took that human reality and put it at the right hand of God. He's not somewhere else away there and we're down here and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when he comes again, I mean, that will finish everything, no, no, no you know, question. But at the same time, and this is what I love about the whole story of the Incarnation and even the Transfiguration, even before the Resurrection, Jesus is revealing a reality, not only about who he is, but about who we are. And instead of the light being at the end of the tunnel, the light is in the middle of the tunnel suddenly now. We think it's only going to be there at the end. It will be there, no question, but he's there with us now in the middle And that was important for, I think, the apostles to learn that 
as they would go through life and they would minister and they would share the gospel, that it wasn't going to be an easy road necessarily. But this shows that the idea of salvation is therefore a life about transformation and transfiguration. Salvation isn't just, I said a prayer, of course, and we know this, and I'm fixed. It is, how am I allowing myself and partnering with Christ to trans- be transformed by his grace, to become what Jesus is? Of course, he's, he's God by nature, but we become by grace, full of his presence. And the church is the place, that environment, that interpersonal, communal, sacramental community where this happens. That's why this isn't just, you know, a Bible study, which is important, don't get me wrong, but it's about the worship of God because it's somehow taking all those words and, and uncovering and revealing the mystery, the power of God's presence that leaves you speechless. And I know, you know, I'm not against enthusiastic worship, and we do it, you know, here sometimes. Of course, our African brothers and sisters, and even our, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Latin America, they're a little more enthusiastic when they do liturgy, which is fine. It shows that there's different expressions. But in the end, and something, somebody asked me one time about the African Orthodox when they do liturgy. Makes me crazy. Anyway, that you know, do they just go crazy during liturgy and so forth? Because people, you know, there have been expressions of Christianity that seem to indicate, you know, when the Spirit grabs you, you just go out of control. But if you talk to our brothers and sisters in Africa, even when they're enthusiastic in worship and doing kind of two-step kind of things in the middle of, of the service and so forth, they're not out of control because the word disciple and discipline go together. And that's why in the Old Testament readings for, for the Feast of the Transfiguration, it's not only about Moses going up to the mountain and Mount Tabor, and of course the idea that the mountain that Jesus goes up to is to be connected to the idea of where Moses and God have an encounter. And that's why Moses is there. Moses is encountering God again, but now God enfleshed in human reality. But also Elijah... And Elijah, I love this, the famous story of when he's, even though for all the miracles he saw, he got scared and he's trying to run it because the authorities are out to kill him. Because he's speaking against these other deities. And of course, we live in a world that tries to have us find other deities. But there's this very powerful thing because I think a lot of times people think that you only have the spirit when you feel emotionally juiced up. I want to point something out here. And it's interesting the church picks this scripture for this. Where um, he's in hiding. God provides for him. An angel brings him food, you know, and so on and so forth. As he's hiding out. But anyway, he hears the Lord's, you know, (laughs) I love it. He's complaining, you know. I've been zealous for the Lord. Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. I alone and left. They're seeking my life to take it away. Because... Like Adam, God comes and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? (laughs) And the Lord says to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, and this is what the Hebrew really says, a sound of sheer silence. That's when you hear God. That's when you know you're in the presence of the... Not when you have to feel juiced up, but when you can, as it says, be still and know that I'm God. That the idea of worship is to, to elicit a place to become, be able to become still. To become still. Because if we were to encounter God face to face, right, most of us would fall on our face. Like it says with Peter, James, and John. They look up and like, whoa. And in fact, I love the icon because it shows the three of them going nuts. You know, you got James goes, I can't believe this man. I should crawl down the mountain. You got John in the middle going, well, let me think what this spiritually means. But he's kind of falling down the side of the mountain too. And Peter, of course, going, uh, uh, let's build, let me build three booths for you. <laughs> one for you, one for Moses and Elijah, etc. And what we learn in, in worship is, and this is why it affects everything in us physically, because we're psychophysical beings. What we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. The ancient Israelites understood that worship is a, is a physical, lived thing. And we live in a world that, a lot of times in, in pop Christianity, it's really about the feelings or just the cerebral. And nothing wrong with the cerebral, nothing wrong with the emotions, but when that's it, instead of soaking in, soaking in the presence of God, like baptism, soaking in, the way God soaked in our human reality into himself is to soak in. And that's where transfiguration takes place. And I think we need to understand that because God communicates his presence. When we think we need the cerebral all the time, don't forget when the Virgin Mary, who's pregnant, goes to see Elizabeth to confirm that the vision she had, she wasn't crazy. Remember the story in Luke chapter 1, and she goes in and she greets her cousin Elizabeth. I love it. You know, in Greek it says Mariam, meaning Miriam, or the Virgin Mary herself. And when Elizabeth hears the greeting, now this is a wild, wild thing. When Elizabeth hears the greeting, John the Baptist in the womb not three years old, not 13 or 20, in the womb still, jumps. And for Elizabeth, that was a confirmation. And, and that's why she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord, and you have to understand Lord being Yahweh, not just Lord like some generic guy in some superior position. How is it that the mother of Yahweh himself has come to greet me? Because soaking in. And they've actually done studies for, for children in, in churches where there's like liturgical worship. If you really see it where they said it affects kids, even if they're not seemingly cognitively like with it. And they, of course, a kid's attention span is not like an adult. Of course, some adults' attention spans are kind of crazy too. But 
but the children will pick up a lot more and it affects the formation more. Train up a child in the way it should go, it says in scripture. Well, this is part of the training, to be in God's presence. And if you read about worship in, in, in ancient Israel and later in the early church, it is very much physical. Because it isn't all about the cerebral alone. I mean, that's a good thing, don't get me wrong. Or it isn't about just what you feel, but it's about in that place where wonder happens, where the mystery. And this is the, you know, what the apostles are seeing and getting a revelation of is this mystery that's present with them. He's, he's been there the whole time with them, right? The whole three and a half years. He's walking around with them, eating with them, right? They go swimming together, they talk, right? Blah, 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 blah. And suddenly, the full revelation of who it is, and it's funny how they keep not getting it. You know, they see this kind of stuff and then a storm happens. Jesus stops the storm. Who is this that makes this happen? You know, who is this? <laughs> which they will only get after the resurrection. Which is one of the reasons he tells, don't share about this vision of the transfiguration until after because you guys are going to twist it all around and, and try to put it in, in ideas that are not what I'm about. Anyway. I want to say this, too, in, just in closing, that, that it's not just the rituals or the, the motions. You know, it's like lifting weights, any exercise. You don't feel it right away. You don't feel the minerals and the vitamins when you eat food. It takes a while to soak all that in. See, we expect some little, whoop, that's it. But it doesn't work that way. But it's not only the practice of worship, the discipline of prayer, you know, like in, in ancient Israel, seven times a day I will worship you and praise you, you know, and so forth. The reading of scripture, soaking that in, and soaking that in as part of worship, not just as a study in some kind of an academic sense, but soaking it in, soaking in the presence of God. And everything like you see here, the smells, the taste, the touch, the, the sound. But it's also in the interpersonal relationships that are really as sacramental as bread and wine, as incense, as anything else. And we understand that coming together as a bunch of broken people, as like Ramon who had to work today, the poor guy, but likes to say we're the, like the island of misfit toys. That's okay. We all have brokenness. We all have issues in our lives. And that's okay. And it seems that you know, the gravitation towards this, the great saints through the history of the church who are people themselves either were broken, like good old St. Fanorius, who I love, and we're going to do a, a prayer about him at the end of the service, who would, he's holding a candle, he's going, my mom was a prostitute, please pray for her. You know, he comes from, a, you talk about a broken home. St. Anthemus, who was a chaplain for lepers. In an age, in a time, there was no medication to help lepers. and You could catch it yourself. Moses the Ethiopian, who was like a master criminal. I mean, you talk about gangster. Right? Back, imagine back in the day when the average height of a man was five foot seven or eight, and Moses is like six foot ten, an escaped slave, and cla the classic, quote, black angry man, unquote. And yet he has an encounter with Christ through the abbot at a monastery that he was going to go rob, changed his life, gave his life to Christ.
totally transformed, a man of wisdom, and so forth. It's through those relationships that God acts. And that's why the people involved are just as important, if not in some ways, I don't want to say more, but because it all goes hand in hand. It's as important as the incense, as important as the bread and the wine, as the oil, the water, the icons, everything else that plays in. We're all part of this. And so when we celebrate transfiguration, we're celebrating also that God is here to transform and transfigure us. That we can enter into a worship that changes. That allows the Holy Spirit to overshadow us as he overshadowed the mountain where Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, etc. A place where the living and the dead come together to worship this one God. You know? Moses is dead, but he's, the, the apostles see him and hear him talking to Jesus. Elijah, right? And that's what this place is, a place where heaven and earth come together, time and eternity collide. And sometimes really collide. And that's okay because in the collision, the explosion that the collision causes is one that transforms. Ironically, this is also the anniversary of the dropping of the bomb at Hiroshima. But we celebrate an explosion that's way different. Yes, Hiroshima still affects us. The radioactivity is still hanging around. But that explosion of Christ affects us even more. It is more cosmic, more explosive, more brilliant. You talk about flash of light. And we get to taste of it every time we gather together. And reach out to the world around us to integrate into the embrace of that Jesus, of that kingdom, on he- in heaven and on earth together with us now.